we are in a series called Mile Markers, and um, just a little recap on why, how we teach around here. Um, sometimes we go through a book or a letter in Scripture, and we spend a long time in it. Last year at this time, we were in 1 Corinthians, and that took us 10, ten months, Okay. Um, now, we, we tricked you because we made chunks of it different series, and so you didn't get bored. Well, you probably did. Um, sometimes we kind of talk about an issue or a way of life um, that we see in Scripture, um, but it's not a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter thing. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. In fact, our next series is going to be a little like that too, and I'm not going to—I'll talk about that in a second. But um, so this year we started in Daniel. We uh, we actually went through the Lord's Prayer word by word, um, but now we're actually in a series called Mile Markers, and what we're doing is we're actually looking at four different ways, and there's a few more, but four different ways throughout Scripture and throughout church history church tradition for the last 2,000 years. It turns out there's been many followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. And some of them have actually written down kind of a map, a roadmap or a, a paradigm on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we're kind of looking at some of those and all we're doing simply is asking the question, what are the invitations of Jesus for you as you reflect on your stage of life, as you reflect on your season of following Jesus. And we talked last week about the first half of life and the second half of life. For some of you, it was absolutely depressing. For some of you, it was like, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, for some of you in the young side of your life, you were freaking out that, oh, I'm gonna have those feelings one day. Yes, you will. Uh, the first week we talked about the three ways, and it's kind of one of the most ancient ways of looking at your life of following Jesus. But today we're going we're gonna to finish up. The, this is the last kind of paradigm we're going to look at. Next week we're going to talk about what doesn't matter what stage of life you are, what season of life you are, you need this one thing. We'll talk about that next week. Uh-huh. That's how it goes. I'm a teaser. Um... And then the final week, we're going to talk about where are we headed, okay? Where are we headed as a church? Where are we headed in our life of following Jesus, okay? So if you're with me and you've got a Bible, you don't have to have one, but you're definitely going to get more stars if you do. John chapter 21. This is actually a passage we looked at last week, but we're going to look at it again. Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus talking. When you were younger, and he's talking to Peter. Sorry, I had to set all that up. You dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So it's this conversation Peter's having, I mean, Jesus is having with Peter, and it is at the end of John's gospel. 
And what's interesting is we talked about this last week. That John's gospel doesn't end with a miracle story. It doesn't end with like an amazing teaching. It ends with this really real conversation that Jesus has with Peter. He said, Peter, right now you're young. When you're young, you're, gonna, you're going where you want to go. But one day when you're old, things will be different. And notice the language he uses and uh, the, the verbs for the, the, there are very active verbs for the first half of life, right? They're active verbs. They're like, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. And then the second half of life ver- verbs are very passive, meaning someone else will dress you and lead you. What Jesus is hinting at, uh, I believe, and many other people believe, is that there's this idea that the farther we get down the path of life and the farther we get down the path of apprenticing Jesus, okay, the more transfer, per, transformation will happen to us, okay, not be caused by us. Does that make sense? Meaning the more our apprenticeship to Jesus, it, it, right now it, it, or maybe early on in your life following Jesus or in your youth, the more it feels like you're practicing, the more that feels like you're doing things to follow Jesus. And then later on, further down the road and you're apprenticing to Jesus, the more it becomes about accepting what God is doing in us, particularly through our pain. Now, active and passive spirituality are, it's actually a concept that's been all throughout church history. And one of the things that's interesting about this idea of active and passive spirituality is that, I mean, I don't know, let's just do a little history lesson. I don't know who necessarily coined the beginning of it, but two very famous followers of Jesus in church history, John of the Cross and Teresa of Alia, she and him, they were, they were much into this idea of the human um, experience and how humans acted and reacted towards things in their life and how that coincided with God. Sadly, here's the thing. When we hear the word passive, it's kind of a negative word, right? When we think of someone who's passive, we think of their passive aggressive. Like, it's so amazing how late you always are, you know? Like a passive aggressive. <laughs> passive aggressive person or or maybe someone who's passive person you know their personality is passive in the sense that they don't have a backbone you know that's not what we're talking about we're talking about this idea of passive it's well, especially for us or as americans it's like this upward and onward and an achievement based idea in our lives and we bring that into our life of following jesus We think about reading books and going to classes and all these things that seem like we're following Jesus. That's the active part. Learning how to pray, learning how to do the practices, learning uh, learning scripture. Those Those are active things that we participate in. The passive side of it is what I really want to dig into today. Because in history, in the history of the church, um... There's been probably in the last hundred years, and some of you are going to freak out at this, but there's been a break between following Jesus and faith and the study of the human condition in psychology. And some of you are like, well, yes, that should be the case. 
Um, and there's a lot of fear around the idea of psychology. We well, need to understand that prior to the 1920s, faith and psychology were together. They were married. There was, there was not one without the other. And then the 1920s, the roaring 20s, and then we were getting closer to prohibition and things like that. And, and um, then there was the Scopes trial. That's when the fundamentalist movement began. And there was this desire to split faith and science apart, okay? But before the Enlightenment, psychology and faith, I mean, pastors and, and, and leaders of churches in church history, they, they cared for the soul and the whole human person. Now pastors are CEOs and authors. Now we're, we're supposed to be like these, uh, we're supposed to read business books like Jim Collins, Good to Great. We're supposed to run a tight corporate culture. But that's not how church history has been. It's been full of people that have cared for people. They, yes, they've preached sermons, but they've also guided people in their life and how they followed Jesus, where they were at, whether it was in pain or in celebration or what have you. Does that make sense? And so the spiritual leader of the community, you know, they, they obviously had um, um, some leadership to them, but they, they kind of steered people towards two practices. And these are what we're going to get into today. This first one is active spirituality. And you know what this is. It's what we call practice around here. We talk about practice a lot. And we have a whole bunch of practices online, and there's ways that you can practice prayer and solitude and community and fasting and Sabbath and all these things. These are really healthy practices. Um, these are the, the things in our lives that we feel that are they're self-effort, right? But empowered by grace and that God meets us in our doing. God meets us in our Sabbathing, in our solitude and in our reading of scripture, right? And, and it's also the hard work of doing really hard work in your life, um, whether it be through faith walking or digging into your childhood and your past. It's what our Calvinist friends call the mortification of the soul. It's called mortification, this idea that, um, that living a crucified life, right? Um, a covenant of repentance. That's what this idea is. This is like our effort in the game. Now, all of this, the active side of it, is kind of what we're used to, right? You're used to going to church, and you're used to, um, you think that if you don't do some things, that transformation won't happen, right? It feels very goal-based, right? Like, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going I'm to go to church, and I'm going to go to this group, and I'm going to go to this conference, and it feels like there's a success or failure to it, and it kind of feels linear, right? Like I did this, now what I'm going to do? Well, I'm going to do this. So you could say that active spirituality or practicing is, is part of the role that you and I play on the journey. But then there's the passive side, which is really the exact opposite. And this is the, interest, this is the part that I've been kind of leaning into in my own life lately. It's the aspects of our apprenticeship to Jesus, Okay where it feels like God is doing something in us, okay? And, and we don't have much control over that. And, and usually it's through things that are out of our, completely out of our control 
And usually it's against our will. Usually it's stuff that we wouldn't have signed up for. Because what would you rather do? You'd rather read a book, right? Then go through the season or chapter of your life that you're going through right now. And so things like suffering, things like um, the pain that we experience in life. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of different um, beliefs on where suffering comes from. And um, some think that all suffering is from God for our good. And I would respectfully disagree and disrespectfully disagree with that. Okay? Uh, Scripture is really clear on suffering. Um, whether it be a malevolent spiritual being behind it or our sin or someone else's sin towards us. Um, it uh, might even be this, this idea that this world we live in uh, pre-resurrection um, uh, for all of us is actually, we live in a, in a world that is broken and there are uh, different wills at work. In fact, in mid-September, we start a series called The Struggle is Real around the flesh, the world, and the devil. So get ready for the fall, people. We're going to analyze, really, we're going to analyze the three different, uh, these pieces in Scripture that are very prevalent all through Scripture. The flesh, what's the flesh? What's the world? And who is this devil? And we're going to talk about it right through Thanksgiving. So <laughs> you think I'm joking. I'm not joking. We're doing this. It's going to go right over Halloween when all of you dress up, do your thing. But here's the thing, however you interpret evil in your life, you know, whether it's um, a disease or whether it's, um, you know, a natural disaster, whatever, whatever you think of evil, whether God is in control or somebody else is in control, either way, God often does some of his best work in our pain. And what comes out of it, as painful as it is, is good. And so another example of, of passive spirituality is this idea of acceptance. This idea of, of accepting the limitations um, of our life, of our season of life that we're currently in. Some of you are entering a season of little children. There's a limitation to your life during that season. Angela and I call it the tunnel. It just feels like this long, dark tunnel where you don't get to go on dates and you're, you know, there's just this, it's just a hard season. It's a beautiful season. It's a good season, but you just feel like you have so much responsibility and so much on your shoulders. Some of you are in a season of life where more and more your friends are passing away, or maybe you've lost parents. Some of you in a season of life where you're trying to figure out your career and your identity. Some of you are in a season of life where you're sending your kids off to college and that's painful and it's hard and it's good. It doesn't matter what your season of life, it's accepting what your season of life, the limitations are in that season. And especially in a culture that is like FOMO, you know, and YOLO and BOGO and all of the 
stuff. I mean, this is a culture that tells us, you know, that limitations are actually bad. Limitations are bad for you. When actually, I think they're a form of God's grace for us. So, I know this sounds very seminarish, but these are the times when we ask, where is Jesus in this? These are those seasons in our lives when we ask, okay, God, what are you doing? Because it feels like I'm not in control of the things that are happening to me. What are you doing here? What are you asking of me? And I think one of the great teachings of Jesus in this is actually comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, or actually we're going to go to 6. The Sermon on the Mount is basically 14 mini teachings of Jesus, okay? And this one that we're going to look at is actually by far his longest and personally, I think, probably his most important in the teaching in the teaching series. And so we're going to look at uh, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. This is when he gets into his hippie moment. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. Sorry, that you need them. And all these, oh, I, I missed a whole section here. It's not in my notes. And seek first, sorry, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I think this is sometimes a very misinterpreted passage. Partially because as Western American Christians who live in the lap of luxury and convenience... We read this through that lens. We read this passage and we're like, oh, maybe Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry about your life. Everything will work out fine. Then that's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, if that's what Jesus was saying, I think, it was, it's, I think it's wrong. I think Jesus, notice how we all skip this part because this part's uncomfortable. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire. So there's this, like, this idea like, hey, this is this little hippie moment of Jesus talking about, look at the grass of the field that's here today and tomorrow will burn, right? And we're just like, oh, that's uncomfortable. I'll keep reading. This idea that there's harsh reality in this life. Jesus is not saying, hey, guys, don't worry. Everything will work out fine. 
This is not to delude ourselves into thinking that nothing bad will happen to us. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, don't worry, nothing bad will happen to you. You're like little birdies. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. The key, I think, in all of this is this idea that Jesus wants us to come to a place that no matter what happens to you, okay, no matter what happens to you, the primary desire of your heart is to seek first the kingdom of God and nothing can take that away from you. That no matter what you have or don't have, no matter about what you've achieved or not achieved, no matter about what has happened to you or not happened to you, by seeking first the kingdom of God, that is the primary motivation. It's like the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes at the beginning here um, is just a whole list of people um, of, of really what, what many have called virtues, right? Um, and it's really a list of people that in Jesus' day were cursed people. And Jesus is telling these quote-unquote cursed people that they actually have access to the Father despite their life situation, despite what's happening has happened to them. Blessed are the brokenhearted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying that of all the people in the Jewish society, these were, the, these were the cursed people, and these cursed people, quote unquote, actually had access to the Father, which is really a central message of Jesus. Jesus' central message is that anyone can have access to the Father through me. And that's good news. And it's good news because no matter really, kind of, if you don't have any money, you have access to the Father. No matter what your health condition is, and Jesus you know, practiced this and taught this as he touched lepers and gave sight to blind people. He says, no matter what your health condition is, you have access to the Father. No matter what your background is, and he's meeting with the Samaritan woman, no matter what your background is, you have access to the Father. That's what the central message of Jesus is. And, and Paul says this, he goes on in Romans 8, he says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This idea that you and I, no matter our circumstance, no matter our season of life, our stage of life and what we're going through, the idea is we have access to God. So Jesus is really getting at something pretty radical here. He's actually getting, getting us present to this idea that, that there is life for us that is free of anxiety. And that sounds kind of weird. That sounds like a pipe dream, actually. But... And a life that is so centered on the kingdom that we no longer need anything else in this life to make us happy. That nothing else in this life can make us happy and healthy. And so this is the idea of passive spirituality. That like, there's no longer, we're no longer a slave to our attachments. Why? Because some of those attachments get ripped away from us. 
and it's out of our control. And there's nothing we can do about it. And it begins to show us that we can reorder our mind and our heart and our mental maps towards the kingdom instead of these attachments. Robert Mohan wrote this. I love this. This might be helpful for you. It's a deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservations. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, power, and purpose can be released through our lives into all situations. Now, here's the thing. We desire to be transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what we want to be as a church. And that's why our little slogan out there is not just a slogan. It's like actually something we're trying to live into in every different area of our church. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That's really the goal. That's really the path. That's really kind of what we're trying to work on. Now, what, what that means is that sometimes teaching, whether it's here or what's, whether you uh, read scripture or whatever like that, teaching has this way of changing our mental maps, okay, into what Jesus thought. Like to change out what we think about life into what Jesus thinks about life. And then through the disciplines, and that's the active side, right? Through the disciplines and through community and, and through the Holy Spirit. And then, and then you add in time, right? Over seasons of life right? As Jay-Z puts it through the hard knocks of life, right? All this stuff through the hard knocks of life, through time, we become more and more like Jesus. Augustine said, without him, we can't. And without us, he won't. And I think this is really important because it really takes both of these things. It takes the active side of our faith and then it takes this idea for us that to, to really approach the things in our lives that are out of our control, like how long we live, it's out of our control. I don't know if you noticed that. Like some of the health things we uh, come up against, the seasons of our life, some of those things, the pain and the suffering that enter our life through relationships and, and, and death and brokenness and all that kind of stuff, we, those are out of our control. And what, what I'm encouraging us to do is to simply say, okay, God, what are you doing here? See, here's the thing. We need both. We need the active side and we need the passive side because the, the active side will only take you so far. So, Pretend with me that following Jesus is linear. It's like this, you know, steps. It's like Scientology. Never mind. Let's not do that. It, let, let's pretend that it's linear and there's steps, okay? Let's pretend that you come to follow Jesus and you're at A, okay? And then you begin to read your Bible. And then maybe you're like the average church attender in the country. And you go to church 1.4 times a month. And then you, maybe you mix in, you have a few more Christian friends 
And then just to top it all off, just to get you to the next level, you listen to Caleb in your car, okay? I know, it's good stuff. That might get you to C or D or E down the road. Just the simple things, right? Now, if you want to really grow, and if you want to take your apprenticeship with Jesus to the next level, and maybe you start to adopt this, adopt some of the practices, right? And maybe you start to read scripture, and maybe you get involved in a community, and maybe you start to practice solitude and some of the disciplines, and maybe you start to arrange your life different ways, maybe around the poor and, and, and moving into other marginalized people groups to, to experience their life and to love on them and to be impacted by them as well. And maybe you do some of those practices as well. Maybe you get to like M or P. I know. But you talk to a number of people that have done that. And at some point in their life, they begin to see that there's much deeper things going on in their life. There's some things that are hardwired into their neurobiology from their childhood and from wounds and from pain. And they keep running into the same things over and over again. And then maybe some, some difficult things come up in their life. Maybe there's a, a diagnosis or a loss or things like that. And, and they get to this place where they begin to realize that following Jesus is really ultimately what Jesus said. It's about taking up a cross. It's this idea of dying, of giving up some things, of handing some things over, of laying some things down. And you feel like as a, the longer you get in the journey, and you can ask people in our room who have been following Jesus for a long time, the longer you get in the journey, it becomes more about laying down than building up. It becomes more about acceptance. And the problem is, is that we have these tricky things that are called the idols of the heart. These are attachments. They're tricky things. And we have attachments to things. Things we think we need in order to have a happy life. So for the married people in the room, um, some dangers for us is this idea of an illusion that we might have towards the perfect marriage, a happy marriage. And if, as long as you think you need a certain thing to happen or a certain uh, quality in your spouse um, in order for you to have that expectation met, you're actually never going to really be able to love your spouse in the way they actually are. So it's this idea, and I, you know, I ripped on marriage stuff last week, so go back and listen to my, my criticism of most Christian teaching on marriage, but this idea that we have this perfect vision of what our spouse should be. And along the way, we criticize and we cajole and we, you know, we suggest things to them, and we end up wounding them. And we're wounding them because they're not this ideal, perfect person that we think they should be. 
And it, and it, and it sucks because it's, it's actually in the greatest place of safety. We should be experiencing the greatest place of safety in our lives in that kind of a relationship. Or think about being a parent. Um, if you haven't noticed this yet, parents, you carry with you expectations for your children that they're going to be, you know, a Heisman Trophy winner or they're going to get a scholarship or whatever it is. And if you're young parents, I want you to be careful as you, as you're, as you just naturally and tacitly put together these expectations in your mind and your heart. Because one day they may not graduate with a 4.0. Or they may not get a scholarship for basketball or soccer. Or, or they may not go the same route you went. And that's okay. And, and, and for some of you in the room, there's, there's more than that. Maybe you're single and you're struggling with your body image and you're, you're frustrated because everything you look at just seems like impossible. When God actually gave you a body to serve him with, despite what our culture says. And maybe you're struggling with your career and the expectations you, you like, I should have been, I should have, I thought 20 years ago, I would be further down the road in this than I am. Now, at some point, we all get to a point where we have to face the reality of our life. Not the fantasy version of it, or the could have been version of it, but the reality of our life with acceptance and joy. And and now, this is more of a second half of life thing, and I want to admit that. But this idea where you get to a place and you say, okay, this is my this is my body. This is my family. This is my life. This is where I'm at. These are my kids. This is this is my regret. This is my pain. This is this is where I find myself. This is my background. And the goal is to come to a place where we calmly hold reality in our mind. And we're at peace and full of love. We're actually what Jesus really wanted as he taught about worry and anxiety and getting all in a frenzy. This is our life. And we're full of joy and full of love and full of of acceptance in that reality. Now, John of the Cross wrote a poem. Some people call him the greatest of Spanish poets. And here's how it begins. He's like, to reach satisfaction in all, desire satisfaction in nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. Now, here's the idea behind this. This isn't fatalism. This This isn't me telling you, oh, just have a low bar. In your life, it's not it. I know this is like counter to how we think, right? This is counter to how we're kind of wired as American Christians. But my question to you is, what are the crosses in your life right now? Where are the places that God, it feels like God is, is in control, that God is doing the work and it's against your will and it's against your desire, but you are, you are having to lay some things down in your life. 
And, and these are really painful things. And these are not things that you're like, hey, I would love to tell you about how bad my life is right now. Would you love to listen to that? <laughs> and then we say, we'll pray for each other and we lie. And then we go on our merry way. These are really painful things. These aren't things you show up at church and go, hey, guess what, everybody? I'm really, really, um, like, I'm just really feeling self-conscious about how I look. Or, or I'm really feeling self-conscious about the choices my kids are making or, or how my career has gone. I, I just, you know, and then, and then what you think is you're going to sit here and then, and then I'm going to pump you up with some really cool uh, Christian verbiage. And then you're going to go out there and try again. What if God's trying to tell you to sit in your pain and your suffering right now? What is God trying to do in you, through you, in a way that allows you to love people out of it? Right? And not just like push it away or escape it. We think sometimes that life is an endless game of whack-a-mole. You know whack-a-mole? Anybody ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? This game's great. A little mole pops up, you hit it. And as the game gets more intense, oh, you're whacking some moles. Like you're, you're, you're going for it. And some of you think that like life just feels like one giant game of whack-a-mole. And a problem pops up. I do everything I can externally to fix that problem. You know, my kid's acting up. Oh, get them some friends, better friends, or a better, like a therapist, or, or my wife's acting up. Send her to a conference, or, you know, <laughs> my career's not going right. Like, I'm going to get a new, you know, skill set. And life's one big game of whack-a-mole after another. And realizing when we take an active approach or a passive approach really takes discernment. It's a great prayer Some of you know it um, probably by heart. It's the serenity prayer. You guys know the history behind this prayer? It's actually Reinhold Niebuhr. And if this looks familiar, it is. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now, this prayer has been adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. And if you've spent time with people in recovery or in recovery yourself, it's a really powerful community. Um, Actually, I want to encourage you to actually do something you probably never thought you would do. If you've never been in recovery or if you've never been with somebody in recovery, I would actually encourage you to take a little field trip, a little homework, and go to a meeting. Go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Go to a recovery meeting. You will find grace and community and encouragement in that place that you will not find in 99% of churches. I want to encourage you to do that. And we're going to talk more, more, more about that next week. But this is the serenity prayer. And, and, and Ronald Niebuhr wrote this. And here's the tricky thing about it. Everybody knows this part of the prayer, but they really don't know the rest of the prayer. Want to see it? Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, 
taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably, I love the honesty here, (laughs) so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. I love it. Now, three ideas just for you and I to take with us today. And then we're going to pray together as a community. Cool with that? Three things you can do. If you feel like you're in a place in your life where things are happening to you and they're out of your control, here's what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to make space. I want you to make space in your life. I want you to find moments and afternoons and an hour here or half an hour there. I want you to make space in your life just to listen. I want you to listen. I want you to be intentional about this. Um, Pray, make space in your life, maybe even talk with people in your life, maybe to reach out to someone who you think might be helpful for you during this time. Second thing I want you to do is this. It's gonna be super fun. I want you to move toward the pain. I want you to move towards it and I want you to ask this. Where does Jesus meet me in this? Because if you follow, if you study, if you read all four gospels, nine out of 10 times, where does Jesus meet people? Like in their pain, like in the worst part of their life, in the things that they have no control over, the woman who's bleeding, uh, the leper, you know, the Samaritan woman, um, over and over and over, he's meeting people right in the midst of their pain. You know what that tells me? That he's going to meet you and me right in our pain. The lie of the enemy, which we'll get into this fall, is that we need to move away from our pain. Is that we need to Netflix our pain. And we need to numb our pain away. The third thing is this, accept the invitations of Jesus in your life right now. What is Jesus saying? What does Jesus want you to do with this? Final quote, and then we're done. Ronald Rollheiser, he says this, we mature by meeting life just as God designed it and accepting there the invitations that beckon us ever deeper into the heart of life itself. There are things that God wants to do against your will that will forever shape who you are and how you love other people. So what are the what are the invitations we've been asking this after every week? What are the invitations of Jesus right now in your stage and in your season of life? So what I want to do is we're finishing up And you know I'm going to check the time, but ultimately it's not going to matter. Well, it kind of matters. As a community, before we go, before you sugar up and get your kids, okay, I want to pray. And I want to invite you into praying. And many of you are in that place where this is like, okay, this is where I'm at. 
And, and what I wanna do is I wanna pray out loud and I want you to pray where you're at and I want you to pray with any vulnerability that you want. What is 